All right. Good morning, you guys. They keep moving this thing back further. Maybe I look taller. Further away, I look taller. Okay, kids, you guys are, uh, are dismissed. Uh, so preschool through fifth grade, you guys are headed out that way. And as well, um, youth group. So middle school, high school, youth group, you guys are headed out as well uh, this morning. Everybody else, you're in. And we're going to be in the book of Mark this morning. And if you don't uh, have a Bible with you here, we would love you to have one so you could raise your hands. And we have some Bibles that we'd love to put into your hands. And if you don't have your own Bible, take that one home. Or come and see us at the info table and say, I want a Bible. And we'll get you a Bible. We want you to have a Bible um, for sure. Um, I just wanted to um, just reiterate some things that Pastor Jeff had said uh, this morning. Lots of great stuff starting back up here as we start into the new year. Uh, and the regroup study, the Wednesday night midweek study, I uh, can't recommend that highly uh, enough. Just a great opportunity to go through, you know, just to make some more progress through more books of the Bible. Uh, Paul's letters to the Thessalonians are fantastic. A couple of my favorites I'm kind of jealous that Pastor Jeff is teaching them to you. But anyway, he does a great job in the middle of the week. Now, if you come here uh, in the middle of the week for that study, the parking lot is super dark and it's super spooky. But don't be scared. Just go around through the gate right to the back, kind of where we have the uh, agape feast sometimes. Um, and it's right back there uh, in the fellowship hall. And just a great opportunity. It's a nice small group, so it's easy to get connected and plugged in. And the same, of course, with the, um, the life group, the sermon discussion group that the Nelsons lead over at the church office. So that's not here. Don't come here if you're interested in that sermon discussion group. It's right down there at the church office, which is over on Old Middlefield Way in the address uh, is there in the bulletin. But just uh, encouraging you to get plugged in in the middle of the week. Once a week in the Bible is just not enough. Hopefully you're all in it every day um, as well. But these are great opportunities to be in it together and just to, uh, to make some good progress through the scriptures. So we're going to try to continue to make some progress in the scriptures this morning. We're going to continue on uh, in our study through the gospel according to Mark. But before we do, of course, uh, we need to pray and ask the Lord that he would uh, bless this time. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for each person who is here, Lord, and the work that you're doing in each one of their hearts, and um, pray that you would bless them this morning, Lord, as, uh, as we go to your word, Lord. We pray as we do each and every week that your spirit would be our teacher, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say uh, to your church, Lord, personally, uh, as well as collectively, Lord. And we just ask your blessing on this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I think Mike left me a few minutes this morning um, for, for my thing, although what he had to say was such a, a great encouragement uh, this morning. I do love that scripture reading time. Uh, as part of our Sunday service, and I'm especially excited this year. Uh, again, I think it was such a blessing to track through the Psalms last year, but this year it's kind of more um, the person who's reading the scripture, whatever it is that the Lord's been ministering to their heart, uh, for them to share with us, and I so appreciate uh, what Mike had to share uh, this morning. That was a, a good word um, today. So, uh, so continuing on this morning in Mark chapter 14, and we are getting closer and closer to the cross 
of course, with each passage. And you'll remember it's Thursday night now in the Passion Week as Mark records kind of his account of these final hours of the life of Jesus with what we saw last couple times, the Last Supper. And remember, the Last Supper, as we would call it, was really kind of the final Passover of the Lord with his disciples. But it was also the first communion celebration for the disciples with the Lord, as Jesus really kind of uncovered for them the true meaning of the Passover. Remember, it was this celebration of Israel from the, uh, the deliverance that they experienced from the bond of, bondage of Egypt. But we said then, we saw that it had always pointed to this greater deliverance that would come from that greater bondage that all of us are in uh, of our sins, right? And that that would come, of course, through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus just hours from that point on the cross. And last week we looked, if you remember, at, uh, at a, a very important conversation that took place as the disciples and Jesus left the upper room and they made that walk kind of through the old city and out of the city to, on the east side and up to the Mount of Olives. And as they walk, uh, Mark recorded for us this warning that Jesus gave to all of his disciples of their coming failure that would happen that very night, he said, during a, an intense time for them of trial and testing. Now, I don't think I'd be going out on a limb too far today to say that there are probably very few of us in this room this morning who loves being in a time of trial and testing, right, in our own lives where you know, we just really embrace them and we, we really run toward them and we look forward to them as they come. But I think at the same time, any of us who've been a Christian for any amount of time would also agree that it is those times of trial and testing that come into our lives, those are the times when we really have grown the most. It's the times when we learn the most not only about ourselves, but certainly the times when we learn the most about the Lord. And we've been looking at these final days now, these final hours before the cross. And in a sense, we are watching in real time the way that Jesus himself faced by far his greatest trial. And I think that that's significant for us because, you know, all of the life of Jesus is so important to know about and it's so important to learn from. And yet much of it may not be part of kind of our everyday experience, right? We might not be out there every day casting out demons, right? We might not be raising people from the dead every day at work, but we can assume that every day... We are going to be faced with times of trial and testing. And this morning as we look at the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are so many valuable lessons that we can learn really from our Savior's really what was a, a sacred experience there. And their lessons I think we're going to see that do apply to us. Lessons that, you know, for the trials that we face every day as well as those big, big trials in our lives. So the title of the message this morning is called Lessons from Gethsemane. 
and I would probably even say that we could back up even, and we could say that really our first lesson from the garden actually happened on the way to the garden. And it was what we learned last time in looking at the failure of Peter first and then what would be the failure of the rest of the disciples. And that was that we should take no confidence in the flesh. And if you missed it last time, you can check it out. Um, you know, just a look at, uh, again, how we need to live in desperation for the Lord and not reliant upon our own strength and ability. So now next, this morning, now we're going to start to learn from the example of Jesus himself. They're arriving now at their destination after this short walk from the upper room. And so it starts out in verse 32 of Mark chapter 14. It says, then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. Now, even as we get started today, I have to say that there are a number of moments within the life of Jesus that are recorded for us in the scripture, which I think that we would consider to be holy ground. And this surely is one of them here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I will tell you, I think that anyone who tries to teach about it or who tries to comment on it, I trust, feels the same tremendous sense of awe and just kind of a sense of pause that I do. You know, one author, I appreciated what he wrote. He said that the supernatural character of the event causes one to fear lest one in any way should spoil it by touching it. And that's really my prayer this morning is that I don't do that. I don't want to spoil what is this sacred holy ground. Now Gethsemane was a, a private, probably a walled garden just on that east side of the Temple Mount across the ravine, remember, of the Brook Kidron on the kind of the lower slopes of what, you know, eventually is the Mount of Olives. And we know that this is a place where Jesus would often go with the disciples to seek the Father in prayer. John tells us, of course, that it was surrounded by these ancient olive trees. And in fact, the name Gethsemane means olive press because it was there in this place where all of the olives that were harvested from these trees would be pressed and actually crushed for their oil. And of course, this is fitting because this is the very spot on this night that the Son of God, Jesus himself, would also be crushed. So this is the place where Jesus is going to be pressed on every side and just crushed by the forces of darkness and really by the reality of what it is he's about to endure. Just that crushing reality of him becoming the sacrifice for the sins of of the world. And this is what is now weighing in on him as a man at this point and in this place. Now, remember, the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is both fully God, but that he is also fully man at the same time. Now, we can't wrap our minds around that, and yet it's true nonetheless. And it is simply one of those you know, the secret things that the Bible says belong to the Lord, right? The New Testament calls it a mystery. 
And in fact, Paul, in writing to Timothy, says that great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. That's all we know. Now, I have heard plenty of preachers try and solve the mystery of Jesus' humanity and his deity and, and putting it together and wrapping it up in a nice, tidy explanation for it. And I will say that all that they have done, even the best of preachers, all that they've done usually has left me a little bit more confused. Because the truth is, we simply don't know where the lines begin and where they end with 100% certainty, except to know what the Bible tells us, which is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And it's here, within the Garden of Gethsemane, in this passage, of all of the gospel accounts, that we get the clearest picture of the humanity of Jesus. And really his humanity, just in terms of his full capacity to really experience human emotion in the same way that we do. Nowhere more than here dealing with these events in the garden. And they give us a real glimpse into what I think is the real price that Jesus paid, right? What was the true cost of our sins and the true depths of his love. So now here he is with the 11 disciples. Again, verse 32, it says, they came to this place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. So Jesus tells eight of the disciples to wait, and he brings three, right, Peter, James, and John, brings them with him a little bit further into the garden. Now, Peter, James, and John, as we've said, these were his closest disciples. And interestingly, I think it's significant, these were the very ones who had, remember, they had witnessed a glimpse of the glory of his deity up there on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9. And now here, in a sense, they are also going to now witness the frailty of his humanity here in Gethsemane. Because it's with these men, right? It's to these three men that Jesus confides that he's experiencing this deep sorrow and this trouble that he has yet to ever know in his earthly life. Literally, what it says is that he was encircled with sorrow, right? To be grieved or to be sad to the point of distress. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. So Jesus expresses this to these guys in these vivid terms, just this utter anguish that he's facing. In look in verse 33, Mark says that Jesus was troubled and deeply distressed. Now your translations may say something a little bit different. All the translations translate it just a little bit differently. In this case, I actually really think that the King James Version, the original King James, translates it the best. It gives us maybe the best sense of the language because in the King James Version, it says that he began to be sore amazed and very heavy. Now, what in the world does sore amazed even mean? Well, literally, it means that he was struck with terror. 
Understand, Jesus was actually afraid at this moment. And I think this is especially fascinating. When we think about Jesus up to this point, think about all of the dangerous and different types of situations that we've seen Jesus in, right? We've seen him in these dangerous situations because of nature. We think of these storms on the Sea of Galilee, you know, so severe that these seasoned fishermen thought that the boat was going to sink. And yet Jesus, of course, absolutely, completely calm, stands up, rebukes the storm, the waves stop, and that was the end of it. We find him repeatedly in these confrontations with demons, right? People possessed by evil spirits. Remember one of them in particular in chapter 5, that demoniac who was so vicious that no one even dared to go near this person. Remember they had bound this guy up with chains and all he did was bust out of them, right? He simply could not be restrained. And yet Jesus again so very calmly just confronts these demonic forces without even flinching at all. We see confrontation after confrontation with the religious leaders, right? These were the men who had real power and authority to deal with him in a severe way. And yet, of course, in all of those cases, Jesus was never even phased at all. We've watched him talk repeatedly to the disciples about how he would die this horrible death by crucifixion. And yet now, for the first time ever, here in the garden, we find that Jesus is having an experience that he had never had before. He is stricken with terror at this very moment. So there is something happening here in the garden that's extraordinary. Right? So much so that Jesus would say, I, li I like the way the New Living Translation translates it. He says that my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Something is happening in this place at this moment that he has never had happen before. And really what it is is that he's reached this point where he's being pushed to the limits of his human ability to withstand the sorrow. And he feared that death was going to be the result. Because he knew what lay ahead as the agony of the cross approached and there was this weight that was bearing down upon his soul again that he had never experienced in his earthly life. And as we consider, think about this, that it was in the face of contemplating this horrible reality that the first thing Jesus does is he turns and he says to these three men in this moment of this incredible vulnerability as God the Son, Jesus says, hey, I need your help. He says, I need your company. I need you to be with me. I need you to watch with me. And I need you to pray for me. So this is the, the humanity of Jesus on display. Pushed to the limit of his endurance. He's longing here for this human fellowship and this sense of companionship. And boy, how I think that should speak to us as Christians. Right? How it should speak to us of how important it is when we face our own suffering in our lives, though none of us will ever face a trial like Jesus is facing here. But the point is that if Jesus needed that in the depth of his trial, how much more so do we need that same human compassion and connection?
right? So the very first of these lessons from Gethsemane that we can learn from Jesus is that we need to invite others into our trials to stand with us. You know, you think about the capacity that we have to be able as Christians to make ourselves vulnerable to one another and for it to be a safe place for that to happen. For us to be able to simply say, you know what, I am in the middle of something right now that makes me exceedingly sorrowful, right? And I need your company and I need your presence and I need your prayer with me. And to be able to be that open and that vulnerable with another person here within the body of Christ and to know that we're not going to be judged by it, we're not going to be looked down upon as a result of it, we're not going to disappoint that other person because of our honesty about it. And then really to look at ourselves as a Christian and to ask this question and just to kind of let it search out in our hearts could somebody really come to me in that kind of a depth of trial? And could they be as open and as honest with me as Jesus is here with these guys? And Would I really be a friend to them in that kind of situation? Would I be able to really support them in their need? And I think it is such a, a beautiful and a powerful picture, not only of our Savior, but really of how we as the body of Christ can really minister to one another and help to strengthen each other spiritually. So here's Jesus there with Peter, James, and John. He says, stay here and watch. But look what we read next in verse 35. It says that he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now this is important, right? So within the 12, he had the three, but there are certain things and there are certain times when the only one that we can interact with and have it really be effective is the Father. And so Jesus leaves the three. He ventures further into the garden where he can really be alone and be strengthened directly by the Father in his hour of need. Because it's in our deepest needs that truly it is only God who can speak the word and encourage us and impact us the way that we need to be impacted, right? There simply is often no one else that can do it. There are times in each of our lives where we just need something directly from the throne of God, right? And to really be strengthened spiritually by the Spirit of God, right? So in our list of lessons from Gethsemane, we take no confidence in the flesh. We invite others in to stand with us in our trials, and we need to be strengthened in the Spirit. Right Here Jesus in his humanity, he needed reassurance, he needs strength as he just contemplated this cup 
from which he would soon have to drink. Now, repeatedly in the Old Testament, which you know as you read through the Old Testament every year, the cup is a very powerful picture of the righteous wrath and the, the judgment of God. You think about Jeremiah 25, where the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, and he says, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So it's, it's the cup of the wrath of God. And then, of course, in the book of Revelation, the whole latter part of the Revelation, it talks very specifically about this as well, as we see God's wrath really poured out on man's rebellion. And here, Jesus was preparing to drink deeply of that cup, right, on our behalf, to drink of that judgment that our sins deserve, and it forced him, look at there in verse 35, it forced him to fall on his face. Notice it doesn't say that he knelt down on his knees to pray. It says he fell on the ground. Again, just the weight of everything that's happening here, right? Spiritually and emotionally and mentally, it's so heavy that Jesus collapses under the weight of it and he cries out to the Father in his distress as he anticipated the cross. But here's what I want us to understand this morning. Jesus was distressed, right? Exceedingly encircled with sorrow and pushed to the point of death, not just from knowing the physical horror which was waiting for him at the cross, but much more so, Jesus was distressed at the spiritual horror that was waiting for him on the cross. That's where his suffering would go so much further and be experienced so much deeper than any of us could possibly imagine. Now, the, the Bible tells us, and we're going to see in the, in the coming weeks, that by the time the religious leaders got done with Jesus, in just the beating that he received before the cross, that his appearance was so marred, it says he was unrecognizable as a man. In Isaiah 52, it says that many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. So that goes far beyond a beating. This is the mutilation of a human being, of the Son of God. And that we're all familiar with just the physical agony, just from a medical perspective, that was present in death by crucifixion, right? It almost defies imagination each and every time we hear about it. And yet here in the garden, before any of that happens, we're getting a glimpse of what was the worst part of his suffering even before any of that. Again, that was the emotional, mental spiritual suffering. And if you look in Luke's account, right, Luke the physician, in his account of this same event, he says that the agony of Jesus was so severe here that he did what? He sweat drops of blood, right? It says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground, right? An actual medical phenomenon, right? Hema I'm going to mispronounce it. Get me a doctor, right? Hematidrosis, right? 
where, where the capillaries just under your skin start to burst and blood begins to ooze out of your pores with your sweat. And all of this as Jesus is enduring just this unspeakable like revulsion of his holy soul as he anticipated that he was about to become a sin offering for the world. It's one of the most powerful, I think, scriptures in all of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or again, if you like the NLT, it says that God made Christ who never sinned to become sin itself so that we might be made right with God through Christ. So here's holy, harmless Jesus, right? Completely separate from sinners is now made sin for sinners, He was going to stand in the place of guilty sinners. He was going to receive all of that spiritual punishment that sinners deserve. And understand, this isn't just in some sort of antiseptic, academic, like doctrinal kind of a theological way. But in a way that had never happened before since before the foundation of the worlds, the fact that God the Father would indeed turn his back on God the Son. Right, just out of necessity as he was bearing and absorbing all of that sin and the wrath that that sin deserved for the very first time, that connection and that communion was going to be broken within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. Again, an absolute mystery on how that could even possibly happen. But Jesus would be all alone there on the cross so alone we can never imagine it. It had never happened before, and it would never happen again. And again, you just think about an olive press, and you think about those massive stones that were just rolled over the olives in order to crush, and even to extract the oil by crushing, getting the oil out of the pit itself. And we just think about the kind of pressing that's required to extract that kind of oil and that tremendous weight. That's what's coming down upon Jesus in the garden. As it's sort of like like the veil was pulled back here. As Jesus now in his humanity is getting this momentary glimpse into what it's truly going to cost to redeem humanity of the true price that he would pay, the absolute suffering that he was going to endure to fulfill the word, the will of God and to reconcile us back to God. You think about the incredible weight of those sins. Just think about every single human atrocity ever committed in the history of the world. Right? Africa, Thailand, here in the United States, right, or, or Germany or Russia, the Holocaust, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, whatever, whoever, right? Think about murderers, rapists, traffickers. And you take all of that and then you have Jesus, right? Sinless perfection. And on that cross, 
He bore every single sin behind every single human atrocity in all of human history, in every single human life. He took all of that. Absolute sinless perfection bore sin in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend because we have all been sinners our whole lives. And so because of that, we don't even have the capacity to imagine the horror that Jesus was feeling here as this crushing weight of that sin was pressed upon him, right? As he became sin instead of us. As the horror of the cross, that horror of the cross, right, loomed there before him, his humanity here cries out, what, is there any other way? Think about that. He had come into the world to do exactly this, to accomplish our salvation. But here in his humanity, right on the eve of it, right, right at the cusp of it, there is this desire within him for the possibility of any other path. He says, if it's possible for man to be saved any other way than me going to the cross and enduring these things and to being separated from you, Father, right? Couldn't they just join a church? Can't they just do some religious rituals, right? Can they do good deeds? Could we just keep some kind of a running total of what they did right and what they did wrong? But then notice all the while, as he pleads for some other way that salvation could be secured for sinners, notice that all along he was perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Look at the end of verse 36. He says, please, is there any other way? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So certainly a lesson here from Gethsemane that we learn from Jesus is that we need to always be submitted to the will of God. Don't think for a moment here that Jesus is trying to get out of the cross. But rather, he is just demonstrating his beautiful submission in the face of it. You remember what he had said before this. In John chapter 12, he already said, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. And here in Gethsemane, right, crushed by this weight of the world, Jesus continues to elevate the glory and the name of the Father and the reconciliation of each one of us above even his own suffering. And he entrusts himself to the will of God. Then in verse 37, it says, He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation." The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Now in the very next verse, we're told that three separate times, right, probably throughout the entire night, most likely between about 11 p.m., all the way to about 4 a.m., 
Three separate times, Jesus submitted his will to the Father as he prayed to the Father, each and every time speaking the same words, Mark says, asking, is there any other way? And what was the answer? There was none. Heaven was silent. And that is so important because by this deafening but definitive silence, what we know is that there indeed, there was no other way. There was no other way for God to justify guilty sinners than for Jesus, the sinless Savior, to die as our substitute. And that is such an important lesson that we learn here in the garden. Right? Because the cup wasn't taken, we know that there was no other way that this could be accomplished. There was no other way for human beings to be reconciled back to God apart from Jesus going through from this sinless sacrifice of Jesus. Right? Our sins are this barrier that keep us from God. And apart from the one who could take those sins upon himself and to bear the judgment that they deserve, apart from that, there is no way for us to get to God. The very fact that Jesus did die on the cross is proof there is no other way to God. So lessons from Gethsemane, right? Be submitted to the will of God while we really trust in the plan of God. And I think it's helpful, you know, Paul in writing to the Galatians, it's not exactly the same thing, but the very same principle is at play here. Because when Paul writes to the Galatians, he's writing to this group of people who were thinking that they could be justified before God by the keeping of the law. And what he writes to them, he says, look, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need that for Christ to die. Right? So why would Jesus die if there were a law that you could just keep that would make you righteous before God? And this very same thing is true here. If there was some other way that people could be saved, if there was any other way our sins could be forgiven, if there was some way that that gap between us and God could be closed then Jesus would have never had to die, but guess what? He did die. And he died because it wasn't possible that it could happen any other way. And I belabor the point to make a point, and that's this point. This is why it is so frustrating, and it is an absolute affront to heaven when people talk, right, when even Christians talk. Yeah, you know, you hear preachers say, well, you know, you can be saved another way or they say you know all roads really do lead right you don't need to be born again salvation isn't just solely on the basis of faith in Christ he isn't the only way or the truth or the life it's absolutely maddening and we have to wonder when we hear those things if they've ever even read the garden of gethsemane account Understand, the person who says that there is any other way to heaven other than the death of Jesus Christ not only knows nothing about the uh, Calvary and the cross, but that person surely knows nothing either about Gethsemane. Because if there had been any other way for man to be redeemed other than the cross, then surely the Father would have given it here to the Son as he pleads and cries out in agony, but there isn't, and so he didn't. 
Our salvation couldn't come independent of anything other than Jesus drinking of that cup of the wrath that we deserve, right? And I think that, that right here, right, in these three separate times, as Jesus cries out the same thing to the Father, something sacred happens here in the garden. There's this kind of a heavenly transaction that has just taken place where Jesus in his humanity came to a unique point of strengthening here in Gethsemane. It wasn't that he hadn't decided before in his will. It wasn't that he hadn't consented before. But in some sense now, he has just come upon this unique point of power in the spirit as he faced the cross and the cup. I think we could rightly say that he drank the cup at Calvary, but he was strengthened to drink it in Gethsemane. And one of the things I think that will help us understand this a little bit better is if we try to consider just for a moment the humanity of Jesus. Because this is where I think that sometimes we miss it. So at the risk of doing exactly what I said that those other preachers do and just confusing the issue, I'm going to take a crack at this because I want to remind us because I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was thoroughly human. Right? He wasn't just part human and part God, he was entirely human, just like we are entirely human, except for sin. He had no sin. But he was a fully a human being who also was God. And so when Jesus experienced the things that he experienced here in this world, he did not experience them as God, but he experienced them as a human being. And this is an important point because I think sometimes we're tempted to think, well, of course Jesus could go through that because, you know, Jesus is God. And something like that would crush us, but he could handle it because he was God. But when we fall into that kind of a thinking, we're not understanding the nature of Jesus truly. Jesus was God, but guess what? He didn't function as God when he came into the world. He functioned as a human being. Right? If Jesus looked like a person, but he was really just God, like in a costume, then how could we ever relate to him, or how could he really relate to us? But he came and he subjected himself to, to the full human experience so that we could have confidence that the one who we cry out to and the one who we pray to, that he does know exactly what it is that we're going through because he himself had been right there. And so we can't forget this. And what that means in this moment here in Gethsemane, it's not that Jesus went through all this, but he knew in his omniscience that he was about to be raised from the dead so, of course, you know, that would have taken the sting away. But the reality is that Jesus went through all this because he believed, right? Because he believed by faith that he would be raised from the dead. He believed he'd be raised from the dead because the scripture had testified that he would. So another critical lesson for us 
from Jesus' example in Gethsemane is that we need to have faith in the word of God. Again, it wasn't like Jesus is acting as God and saying, yeah, you know, I'm going to the cross and it's going to be rough, but I know that 72 hours after that, I'm going to be back and so it's all going to be done, right? But this whole struggle at Gethsemane shows us, it proves to us that that's not how he went through it. He went into this as a human being, having to put his faith in God's word that he would be raised from the dead. And we all know that on the cross, there was a moment where as far as Jesus could tell in his human experience, he believed God had forsaken him. That God had abandoned him and he cries out from the cross. So this struggle that's happening here in the garden is very real. And so we see that with all of this pressing in on him, he cries out. Look at verse 36. He says, Abba, Father. And Abba is the most intimate term for father. It means daddy. Here's Jesus crying out, daddy, help me. Right? This is a son in desperation crying out to his father. So this is absolutely holy ground. Right, because the Garden of Gethsemane, the Gethsemane, this place of crushing, there's such an important place in God's redemptive plan because it was this victory here over his human agony and his anguish in the garden. That's what makes the cross possible. Again, in a very real sense, we could say that the struggle on the cross was first won through prayer in Gethsemane. Right? Leonard Ravenhill, who some of you may be familiar with, he's an evangelist and an author. I love the way he put it. He said that Gethsemane is where he died. The cross was only the evidence. So here's Jesus, strengthened in the spirit, right? submitted to the will of God, trusting in the plan of God, placing his faith in the word of God because there was no other and finally, we read in verse 41. This is, then he came the third time. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my, be my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus' prayers had been answered. He's been strengthened, he was ready, and the time has now come. And yet for the disciples, right, for Peter, James, and John in particular, that sacred opportunity of watching with him and of praying for him and of ministering to him in his agony, that was gone. They had missed it. These very same guys who had promised to be faithful to death, and yet they ended up asleep. And their opportunity to also be strengthened spiritually was gone as well. Now, I don't want to spend too much of our time on the failure of the disciples, right? There's going to be plenty of time for that in the weeks to come. Jesus had warned them they needed not just to be with him or to pray for him, but they needed to pray for themselves. Because like we said last time, Jesus knew of the danger that was right around the corner but before we're too quick to criticize and to condemn the disciples, when we think about our own prayer lives, 
right? The truth is, for most of us, we sleep a lot better than we pray. Amen? And all of our minds tend to wander when they should just be watching. You know, how often have you heard the Lord say to you exactly what he says to Peter? Look, could you not watch one hour? Could you not watch 10 minutes? Right? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail just as he knows we're going to fail. And so in the same way that he encouraged Peter, he encourages us to victory Right, to be found watching and to be praying that that's the way that we're going to have spiritual victory just like he just demonstrated in the garden. And it's only when we wake up and we draw close and we depend on the Lord instead of depending, uh, depend, depending, is that even a word? Instead of depending on ourselves, that's when we, we see strength from the Lord and we see victory. Right, so, so Jesus found victory at the cross by submitting himself to the Father here in Gethsemane. Peter's just like us. He's going to fail later because he's not watching and praying here. Because the, the reality is that the spiritual battle is most often won actually before the actual crisis even comes. Now, I said I didn't want to talk too much about the disciples. What I do want us to see and what I want us to really take away this morning as we wrap this up, I want us to understand the way that Gethsemane really, I think, in such a unique and a powerful way, not only does it show us these very important lessons, right, how we should be responding during times of trial and during temptations, and they're magnificent, right, and well-written up there on the screen for you all. That was a little joke. But anyway, I think like no other passage of Scripture, what the Garden of Gethsemane shows us, it shows us the magnitude and the deep depths of the love of Jesus. And that's a concept that we hear over and over and over. But today, in this passage, we see it on full display where Jesus is perhaps for the first time getting a real glimpse of the real suffering that was in store for him. And we see what it did to him emotionally and what it did to him spiritually and even what it did to him physically and his love for us won out over all of those things. Some of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards. He was a, a great uh, Puritan scholar in the 1700s, had a great hairdo, but he preached a very famous sermon on Gethsemane. And he very eloquently said this. He said that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. And then he goes on to say this. He said, there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said that Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great, 
it was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. And this was given to him in his agony here in Gethsemane. So what Edwards is saying is that in order for the commitment of Jesus to be fully sort of legitimized, Jesus had to know exactly what he was doing. He had to understand the full extent of what he was about to enter into. And that's why he's given this preview, if you will, here in Gethsemane. And that seeing fully what it is and then agreeing fully to it, to it, that makes his love even just that much more intense and that much more wonderful. And so the, the true lesson from Gethsemane, if we remember none of the other six, the true lesson is that we need to wonder at the love of God. Jesus' love is so very wonderful because he was willing to endure these sufferings that were so great, but then secondly, that he would endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. And this is the absolutely amazing thing. Right? He didn't do this for innocent people. Right? He didn't die for good people who just got trapped in something they had no responsibility for. He died for people who are wicked. Right? He did it for the rebels. And so Edward says this is what shows us just how wonderful his love is. And I think that it's important for us to consider this because it is so common today, especially in our Western way of thinking, for people to challenge the goodness of God or for people to challenge the love of God. Every one of us hear people say all the time, you know, how could a God of love do this? How could a God of love let people suffer? How could a God of love send people to hell? Well, you know, you know, if God is like this, then I'm not going to believe in a God who would do that. I'm not going to believe in a God who would allow someone to go to hell because I believe in a God of love. And a God of love would never do anything like that. We've all heard that, right? The problem with that, with people who say these kinds of things, is that what they've done is that they've just made God in their own image. Right? They have reduced God to exactly the way that they are, and the way that they think, and what they would do. Right? Because they say, well, well, I would never do that, and so God should never do that. Well, listen, here's the truth. You're not God. And I'm not God. Those people are not God. And none of us have any idea what God would do except for what he tells us that he would do. We have no idea the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of God, right? He is incomprehensible. He is infinite. We can never, ever fully know and understand God thoroughly. So if you think about it, here we are. Not only are we finite and God is infinite, but we are sinners, which means inherently that our thinking is twisted and our understanding is twisted and our knowledge is limited and it's corrupted, which is why 
when we say, well, I can't believe in a God who would do this, or I can't believe in a God who would send somebody to hell, well, let's not even talk about a God who judges who we can't fully comprehend. Let's talk about a God who loves, because the truth is that none of us can really and rightly comprehend a God of love. Right? We've, we say, I believe in a God of love, but what does that even mean? Well, in this case, in this passage, we see that what it means of the true God, what it really means is that none of us, regardless of our benevolence or regardless of our compassion, none of us loves like this. None of us loves like we see here in Gethsemane. Because this is what God did. He took his one and only son his beloved son, his most cherished son, and he gave his life in exchange for criminals. And I can tell you right now, I would never take any of my kids and just say, hey, let's go, you know, let's go up to San Quentin, right? Just one prison, right? And there are you know, X amount, however many people there are on death row. And look at those people and say, you know what, I, I know at least some of these people are hardened criminals. I know that they're just still bent on doing evil that they've done, but I really want to see them released, and I want to see them have a second chance. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my son, and since they're on death row, we're going to put him to death instead of them so that they can all go free. Now, is there any human being that would do anything like that? Well, I will answer for all 7.8 billion of us, and the answer is no. Nobody's gonna do that. No one is going to do that, but that's what God did. That's exactly what God did, because we are all sinners. And yes, a sinner is a person who missed the mark, but guess what? The Bible says we're also transgressors. And a transgressor is someone who doesn't just miss the mark. It's not just that I'm a bad shot. A transgressor says, look, I don't even care where the target is. I don't even care about hitting the target. I want to do things my own way, and that's the world. That's the world that God gave his only son for and that Jesus gave his life for. And nowhere do we see that kind of wonderful, deep love so powerfully played out as we do in this struggle here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when, when people are talking about, I don't believe in a God of love can do this or can do that, what's truly impossible is to believe that the God of love did what he did on my behalf. I simply cannot comprehend that kind of love. So I think it would probably be best on our part when confronted with those questions to say, well, you know, I don't understand how there could be a judgment of the magnitude that the Bible says, but I'm not God. So I'm going to leave that with him because he obviously knows why that needs to be. But what he has made clear to us is how much he loves us that wonderful and deep love that he has for us. God wants us to turn to him 
because he loves us. And he demonstrated that love for us. And he wants to have this reciprocal love relationship with us. And when we get this, right, when that really gets hold of us, that's the point where we think, well, how could I do anything less? Right? If Jesus, knowing fully what the price was that he was about to pay, if he was fully committed to it, then how could I do anything less than praise and honor and glorify him? And, and when I say praise and honor and glorify him, all I simply mean is this. How could I do anything but live my life for him? How could I do anything but give myself over to him? Right, His will not my will, but yours be done. And what we see from Jesus is that just as he, it was with him when he released himself into the will of God, look at the tremendous blessing that has come to the entire world because of that act. And in the same way, when we yield ourselves to God, it also results in blessing. Right? It results in blessing for us but it also results in blessing for others. So God help us to do that, right? to release ourselves to him based upon this deep, deep, deep love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for, for passages like this that really challenge us, Lord, and that hit us um, in the depths of who we are as we consider uh, the depths of your great love for us in spite of what we know about ourselves. And so, Father, we pray as we do each and every week that you would take these truths from your word and that you would make them real in each of our hearts, Lord, and that by the power of your spirit that it would evoke a response that's worthy of you, Lord, and that brings glory to you. And so we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.